Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. And she would not excuse either of them because they said they could be fair. And that is the biggest fallacy in the law. The, The person least likely to know whether he or she can be fair is the person who is being questioned. And now, your hosts, Steve Lowry and Yvonne Godfrey. Please rise, court is now in session. Uh, I am your host, Steve Lowry, and as always, I am with the very intriguing Yvonne Godfrey. <laughs> I like it. I, I, as long as you're using the nice or uh, neutral adjectives, I'm going to be pretty pleased. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that was a good one. I like it. Yeah, I, I thought long and hard about that, that one. <laughs> um, well, Yvonne, we uh, have a great uh, guest uh, today and, and have a really just fantastic case to talk about. Our guest today is Roxanne Barton Conlon. Roxanne is a trial lawyer in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, the name of her law firm is Roxanne Conlon and Associates uh, PC, and the, her website is uh, I won't say www, Yvonne, because I know you get on me for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's RoxanneConlinLaw.com. Roxanne, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Good, good. Well, uh, Roxanne, this case that we're going to talk about, and I'm going to give a little intro to it, and then you can tell me of, uh, where I've gotten it right and wrong, but uh, just brings up so many uh, fascinating issues uh, for me. And, and, you know, and when we talk about how you try a case to a jury, uh, this one has a, a, a lot of uh, really uh, interesting parts to it and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, parts to it for, you know, like lawyers like uh, Yvonne and I uh, that we've never tried before uh, as far as um, it, from what I take. And we're going to talk a lot more about this, but your, your clients were a, um, a lesbian couple. Is that right? That's correct. They were a lesbian married couple married shortly after the marriage equality decision here in Iowa. Okay, and and that has uh, got to bring up some challenges as far as uh, picking a jury and um, and um, you know seeing if there's going to be anybody biased against uh, you know gay and lesbians. Uh, I, I imagine that that uh, you had to get creative in your voir dire. Well, I'm not sure if I got creative or not. Uh, certainly, you are correct. That was a very big issue, and we talk. I talked about it with my clients. I talked about it with my colleagues and. We decided to face it head on to just say to the jury, look, this is a case about a lesbian married couple adopting a child. What kind of things does that bring up for you? Um, and I uh, and it brought up a lot of things, frankly. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but Roxanne, first I want to introduce our listeners to you and to give them sort of a background on your accomplishments. And, um, and, and as a sneak uh, preview, I look <laughs> learning about Roxanne and um, reading about her and talking to her about uh, talking to her on our bonus episode. I I feel like I have already wasted my whole life. Like I've been so lazy. Yvonne, you you still got plenty of time and you're doing great. I'm just <laughs> racked with guilt right now. Like I've spent way too much time like watching stuff on Netflix. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and Roxanne and, and Yvonne is exactly right. I mean, you have had a, 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 a long and very successful career and I'm just going to go through and highlight some of your accomplishments by by, by no means is this all of your accomplishments. Uh, but I mean, I should point out that you graduated 
uh, Phi Beta Kappa uh, from Drake University. I've heard about Phi Beta Kappa. I think it's a really good organization. I was never invited to join. <laughs> uh, but uh, but you, ha you have been named as one of the uh, 100 most influ influential lawyers uh, in America by the National Law Journal. Uh, you were the president of uh, the Association of Trial Lawyers of America, ATLA, uh, which is known as the American Association of Justice. Uh, now that's a nationwide organization and uh, and that, that is uh, an accomplishment in and of itself um, You were named as one of the most uh, 50 uh, influential women lawyers in America um, You have been named twice as the uh, 10 as one of the 10 best female uh, lawyers and one of the 10 best personal injury lawyers uh, and have been named in the uh, Law Dragon 500 for it looks like two different uh, uh, once as a as a as one of the 500 leading lawyers and once as as a uh, plaintiff employment lawyer and then one of my favorites and I know one of Yvonne's favorites you were given the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Award from uh, the Now Legal Defense Fund and Education and. Um, and we are uh, big fans of uh, Notorious RBG. So uh, that's, that's a great accomplishment. Yeah. At that point, yeah. I would be like, that's it. I, I <laughs> won life. Right. <laughs> I felt much of the same, Yvonne. Uh, she introduced me. And, oh, that's uh, fantastic. And back in the 70s, uh, when she was a professor at Columbia Law, I was writing an article for the Drake Law Review on the Equal Rights Amendment, and she helped me. So I knew who she was, and she knew who I was, and but then she went on the Supreme Court and, of course, has done extraordinary work. And, uh, and then she introduced me. And it was just kind of oh mind-blowing. That is wow. so cool. <laughs> that is just so fantastic. Cool. Um, Roxanne, I have uh, I've left out a ton of accomplishments that you, uh, that you have done through your career. Um, the case that we are talking about today is called McFarlane versus Reaper. I, I, am I pronouncing that last name right? Is it Reaper? Our, yeah. our, yes, and that was uh, tried in 2017 in the in Polk County, Iowa, and Polk County. That's uh, Des Moines. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, and and this is really, um, uh, I mean, just reading the facts of this case. First of all, it's a heartbreaking case, um, and then second of all, a lot of interesting facts that go along with it. I'm going to do my best to sort of lay it out, and and then Roxanne, you can correct me where I've messed up. But um, your clients were Rachel and Heidi McFarland. And as we've already discussed, they were a lesbian married couple. Uh, and they, uh, I think Rachel McFarland had been approached by a coworker about adopting uh, the child of her daughter. Uh, and her daughter was a 16 year old who was pregnant and um, they were going to put the baby up for adoption. And so they were, uh, interested, they met with the family, agreed to do the adoption, and then they retained this lawyer in uh, in Des Moines from the Reaper Law Firm to essentially handle all of the the um, procedural paperwork necessary uh, in order to effectuate an adoption. And this was a this is a legal malpractice case because basically the child was born in December of 2013. The they were there at the birth. They named the child. His name was Gabriel McFarlane. And they took the baby home. And I, I, I'm going to 
go through sort of all the, or we, we're going to go through sort of all the legal steps that were necessary, but essentially they thought that they were doing everything that they needed to in order to adopt this child, only to learn that the lawyer who had handled that adoption hadn't done sort of the necessary things in order to um, effectuate the adoption. And so then about three months later, the birth mother changed uh, her mind and was able to take the baby back uh, because the proper paperwork hadn't been filled out. And then tragically, about a month after taking the child back, uh, Gabriel died uh, while in the care of his birth father. Um, and so uh, just, a, just a tragic, heartbreaking case. Um, uh, Roxanne, how did I do on the facts there? I know I've jumped over a lot of things, but uh, I just wanted to give everybody a sort of a flavor of the case. That's, that's exactly right, uh, Stephen. The, the, the McFarlands had baby Gabriel for 78 days. Uh, they thought everything was going along as it was supposed to go along. And uh, they had contact with the birth mother. They had agreed to an open adoption. And, uh, and then she got angry with them um, at, during one of the visits. And we think that's what caused her to change her mind, though she, she never did talk to us, even though she was under subpoena to come to court. And she uh, decided she wanted the baby back. And because the lawyer had done nothing that he was supposed to do, the McFarlands were legal strangers to this baby that they loved. And when she came after the baby, they had to give the baby back. <sighs> I know it was just awful. It was one of those cases where everyone on my staff was so emotionally troubled by this that we, we, would, we would have discussions every night after court. And it was just hard to keep it together for all of us. Right. I mean, yeah. it was already, you know, when I was reading through the material, some, some of the materials that you sent us about the case, I already, you know, I was reading the, the complaint and just feeling this, just how tragic it was because, you know, raising, you know, a baby for that long, you know, you know, they've bonded, they're doing all these things. And that, I already thought that was tragic to find out that the baby died is I mean it adds a level of just it's just the saddest case <laughs> I know so it really sad. it really was and and of course he didn't just die Ivan he was killed by his birth father right well right. And, and, and I guess that's not um you know, I, I know that um in the in the complaint and I didn't really see a, a description of exactly why he passed I, I know that in the complaint, it, it was said that he was uh, alone, pale, wet, and foaming from his nose and mouth. What, what, had, what actually had caused his, his death? We, no one knows for sure, but oh. we came to believe that the baby was shaken to death. Oh, oh. God. And there were criminal charges against the father, right? Yes, he, he is in prison for the rest of his life. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and I should say, and, and, and we'll come back around to how, uh, how you tried this case and, and, and how you presented the damages in this case, but this resulted in a uh, $3.25 million verdict uh, that was, uh, from what I could tell, all emotional distress damages. Um, 
Yeah, it, that, all, that is that's exactly right. But among the things that your listeners should be aware of, the jury never knew that the baby died. Really? And really? The court would not permit me to prove that. She thought it was too tenuous. And I've, in the appeal, that's one of the issues. But so we, so we had to do, you know, so much of the family were witnesses and every one of them was, and friends, every one of them was so uh, frightened that they would somehow slip and, right. you know, and, and let it be known that the baby is dead. And we learned in our post-trial interviews that the jury, uh, because they really appreciated in, uh, Heidi and, and Rachel, they thought that when uh, Gabriel reached 18, the McFarlands would find him and reunite with him. Oh, oh wow. Wow. So when I they mean... found out, they found out on the way out of the courthouse that the baby was dead, and they were furious that they did not know that. Right. They felt yeah. that, the, that their verdict was inadequate as a result. Wow. Uh, they're not knowing what they needed to know to make a fair decision. Well, sure. not, I mean, not only that, but, it, you know, talk about laying out legal landmines for the witnesses. I mean, that that's such a huge issue when when somebody's on the stand and either under direct or cross examination. I mean, how you don't accidentally wade into that area must have been extremely difficult. Yeah, it, it absolutely was. And we had so many motions for mistrial um, because some of the witnesses not my witnesses, not the family and friends, but uh, you know, one of the lawyer witnesses uh, uh, in discussing her conversation, with, she was the lawyer for the birth mother and discussing her conversation with the birth mother. She said, I offered her my condolences. <laughs> oh, <laughs> That's yeah. all she said. Uh. And there was, a, you know, it, it was a really an, an amazing, amazing case to try. Yeah. Um, I had a question for you, Roxanne, about when I was looking at the verdict form, um, I saw that your, that your jurors were unanimous, but does, I, in looking at the form, does um, Iowa allow for the jury to find in favor of a party without a unanimous verdict? Yes, I think we have a relatively unique uh, rule with respect to that. It has to, we have an eight-person civil jury. Uh, the verdict has to be unanimous for the first six hours of deliberation. And after six hours of deliberation, uh, it can be a seven to one verdict. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're 
They're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, I, I, I saw that description on the back of here. So, so yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. I, I think that's a great way to do it too. I mean, we, we've been talking for a long time in Georgia about, uh, you know, doing something less than unanimous verdicts. Uh, I don't think it'll ever happen. But um, I mean, I, I think that's a really good way to, especially for civil cases. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and criminal cases have to be, criminal, criminal cases have 12 person juries and they have to be unanimous, but civil cases are different. Got it. Yeah, you, you know, the funny thing down here in Georgia is that uh, with our politicians, what, what they talk about is they want the criminal cases to not be unanimous uh, and they want the civil cases to still be unanimous. You know, so that's, that's, what, that's what we get. That tells you anything. Right. Yeah, right. It does. <laughs> well, um, t- take us through a little bit. And, I, you know, I, I, I do want to talk about, so this was a legal malpractice case against this, uh, against the lawyer. And essentially there were, a, a few steps that this lawyer needed to do in order to effectuate the adoption. And they sounded like fairly straightforward steps. I mean, they might've taken some work and, and he just hadn't done any of those. Can you kind of talk us through Roxanne, just sort of the, in a, in a, a brief way, just some the the steps he should have taken that he didn't take in order to make this adoption go through? I'd be happy to. And keep in mind, this is laid out in great detail in one section of the statute all he had to do in order to not be sued for malpractice and not to have all these horrible things happen was to look at the law. And apparently he never did that. In order to, to do an adoption, you first have to terminate the parental rights of the biological parents. Um, it, 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 the birth mother uh, can't be asked to sign anything until after 72 hours after the birth of the child. During that time frame, she, she, has to, uh, uh, she has to be offered counseling, uh, three hours of counseling, free counseling, about the adoption, about the process, about what she's about to give up and things like that. Um, after she's been offered counseling, uh, she can be asked to sign the release of custody. That's the document that has to be signed before anything else can happen. A release of custody basically uh, places the child in the attorney's custody and gives the attorney the right to, to uh, select a custodian for the child who will have all the rights of a parent until, until and unless the birth parent revokes the release of custody. The birth parent has 96 hours to, that's four days, to revoke custody for the release of custody for any reason or for no reason. You don't have to give a reason. Uh, She just has the right to revoke custody. But once the release is signed and once the 96 hours pass, then um, can't, the, 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 the burden of proof shifts dramatically until, until that, that 96 hours pass 
obviously the birth parents are presumed to be qualified. The birth parents have, have the right to the custody of their child. But once the 96 hours passes, in order to get the baby back to the birth parents, the birth parents have an obligation to show by clear and convincing evidence that uh, they have good cause to revoke that release of custody. And that means the release of custody was obtained by fraud or coercion or somebody misrepresented the law or the facts to the birth parent. And this applies to if one of the birth parents signs the release of custody, either the mother or the father, then it applies to both birth parents. So release of custody is the document that that changes everything. And that's what he never got. They, they could have had a release of custody signed um, uh, on January 5th. Right. And, and it's, sorry, go ahead, Yvonne. No, I was just going to say, and it sounds like the attorney's only explanation for that, reading over your um, kind of the outline that you had for your closing um, argument was that he was busy during that time. He had a trial around then and vacation scheduled. Yeah. And then he got sick. Uh, one of the things that I found most distressing as a member of the bar is that there are people, uh, including my expert, who offer free advice to anybody who is trying to do a private adoption. Uh, private adoptions are not terribly common, and so people don't know what to do. But there, there, are, there were people ready, willing, and able to assist that he never reached out to, that he, he just thought... Uh, arrogantly that he could do this without any help. And obviously he could not. And it cost the life of a child. Yeah. Right. I, well, I, and I, how, how did they find him? I'm sorry, Steve, I keep talking over you. No, that's I, right. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> how did yeah. they, how did the McFarlands find this lawyer? Why did they select this lawyer? Do you know? Did you yes, I do. Rachel, okay. someone, Rachel doesn't remember who uh, 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 referred her to Jason Reaper. But she was referred to Jason Reaper by like a colleague, a work colleague, I think. Okay. And, uh, the, the, and, and when they first went to him in September, um, they, he said, I'll do everything that needs to be done. Give me $1,000 and, and uh, you know, you're good to go. Right. And so they, they continued to believe that. They kept in touch with him. Rachel, uh, whenever Rachel went to the doctor, with the birth mother, whose name is Markea, she she would um, text or email Jason Reaper to tell him how it was going. You know, they kept in touch with Jason Reaper throughout the pregnancy and thereafter. Right. The, had had, uh, had this lawyer ever done an adoption before? Or well, that's kind of a, that's kind of confusing, frankly. Um, he says he has. He says he has done the adoptions before, but not where both of the birth parents were minors. Oh. And uh, that imposes other obligations on an attorney. The attorney must get a guardian ad litem appointed for the minor parent. And in this case, uh, originally the parent was the, the birth father was thought to be a police officer in a small town around Des Moines, but uh, rethinking the whole thing and uh, and looking at the baby, they decided that the birth father was someone else who was also a minor high school student, and uh, and so that that certainly made the 
the uh, getting of the release of custody more complex. But really, all he had to do was find two lawyers, who, and, and they're out there. I mean, their guardian ad litems are, right. you know, that's a common thing in Iowa. You just find somebody who knows how to do that and, 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 and ask them to do it. And if they say yes, then that becomes their obligation to talk to the birth parent, to explain the, the documents and so on and so forth. He just did not do that. He didn't even try to do that until almost a month after the baby was born. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things that we learn, you know, when we go to law school that, you know, if you spot an issue that you don't know and aren't comfortable doing, then go get somebody more experienced than yourself to help you out with it. And um, I, 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 you know, from from a lawyer standpoint, I just don't know why you would handle a case like this. Um, You know, if you really don't know what you're doing, and especially if you don't have the time and you have trial coming up, I mean, we all know how, how busy you get around trial. So, you know, there's plenty of other lawyers to do it. So, why, why take on this case? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And when he took the stand, he basically said, I did the best I could. I tried my hardest. And, uh, and I, I found that reprehensible. Right. Right. Um, yeah, because, I mean, to start, if you're going to be trying your hardest, then, you know, reading the statute would be a, a good a good thing yeah, to a try. good beginning, right. don't you think? Right. That's what I tell all my law clerks. If in right. doubt, if you can't find anything else, look at the law. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> did, you, did you really try your hardest? To- yeah, right. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, so, and, and I understand, at least from what I was reading in the materials, that, that part of the way they tried to defend this case was by saying, well, she never would have signed this anyways. Uh, what evidence did they have of that? Well, none. Um, they they had um, what we had fortunately was text messages between the birth mother and the adoptive parents a lot of text messages and they they uh, they were admitted into court without her without Marquea's testimony because couldn't get her to come to court um, and. And uh, they were very persuasive. Exactly the opposite conclusion was the conclusion that you would reach from reading the text messages. I'm ready to, to give up my rights. My, the birth father, he wants to go give up his rights. And, you know, she got, she, Markea, got very distressed because in the hospital, a woman named Luann Barnes, who is both an attorney and an adoptive specialist, she, she has a private adoption agency and she was functioning as uh, the head of the private adoption agency, she went to the hospital. She gave Markea the forms. She explained open adoptions. And there's uh, one of the other defenses was there's no such thing as open adoption. Well, 90% of the adoptions in Iowa are open adoptions. The fact is they're not mentioned in the statute, but that doesn't mean they don't exist for crying out loud. Right. Um, but, but she, Luann, continued in contact with her uh, during this interim period while she was waiting to sign the papers. And Luann had told her 72 hours after the baby is born, that's when you will be asked to sign a release of custody. And she explained to her that once a release of custody is signed, you're, you're, everything changes. And if you want to get out of the release of custody after 96 hours has passed, you probably can't do that. I mean, she is an extremely experienced and uh, and and really quite compassionate person. And she felt in her visit uh, visits with Markea that Markea understood exactly 
what was happening, that she was more than willing to give up the baby. And her biggest concern is that they'd want to give the baby back to her. Right. Right, right. Which I'm sure happens from time to time. Well, it, it may well happen, but this, it surely was not going to happen in this case. No. Wow. They right. adored this baby. They, From the moment that they knew of his existence, they adored this baby. They had been together uh, since they were 16 in small town Iowa, which, you know, could not be easy. And they, they had talked about the future. And a part of their future together was to have a baby boy and name him Gabriel. And so this was the culmination of a, of, of a, of a dream for them to have this baby. And uh, so there was no chance in the world that they would want to give this baby back. He was right. deaf in one ear, but they didn't even care about that. They'd already gotten him hearing aids and they had really legally, they were legal strangers to this child while they had him in their custody. They had no right to make medical decisions as a legal matter, but of course they did. Right, right. Well, and it was, I mean, it's clear from some of the things that you um, included in the complaint. I mean, I mean, them naming the baby, it sounded like one of the McFarlands cut the umbilical cord at the, at yeah, Rachel, Rachel is a nurse and she uh, was permitted to cut the umbilical cord. Wow. Well, and and I thought I I read, did they have another adopted child? Not at that time, no. When they lost this baby, they lost everything. But there was a lot of publicity, as you might suspect, about this case. And a pregnant woman, unmarried pregnant woman in Cedar Rapids, read about the the death of their baby and and called them and said, "I have, uh, I'm pregnant, and I would you could have my baby." You're wow. kidding. Wow. Uh, also a biracial child. Uh, and, and the McFarlands at that point were so distraught that they, they couldn't even consider another baby. But all of the people who had gathered around them uh, as a result of, of, of Gabriel's birth and death uh, came together and persuaded them that they should take another chance and right. that's how it felt felt to them like they were gambling once more with their hearts right and so but everybody this woman was not a minor um everything went as smoothly as it possibly could go and so now they have this adorable child named london a little girl um and then at the same time uh that they adopted this child Heidi, they were trying, Heidi was trying to get pregnant and she did in fact get pregnant. And so they have two little girls now. But that of course does not substitute for the loss of their son. Of course. But But they are really spectacular parents. (laughs) Oh, Oh my gosh. Do you think that in terms of the trial that it ended up sort of maybe sending a message to the jurors, the fact that um, Markea did not show up or do you think it would have been better if she had shown up? You know, I really don't know. Um, we, we tried to find her for months, literally months, um, and could not find her. Um, finally, uh, I went to Facebook. Uh, she was working as a stripper and, uh, I have a really good investigator who used to be a police officer and she, 
uh, served her at the strip club, served her with a, with a subpoena for a deposition. But it was only a few days before trial, and the defendants moved to quash the subpoena. The judge quashed the subpoena. I thought she might still show up in my office, but they called her. They had her phone number. We did not. They called her and told her that uh, she didn't need to come because the judge had said she didn't need to come. And that was the only time that we ever had any potential for talking to her. Got it. So I really don't know. There, yeah. They did get an affidavit from her to support their motion for summary judgment. And I, and I always felt like, well, if you can get an affidavit for her, you right. must know where in the world she is. And so right. why don't you tell us? Yeah, but they absolutely. never would. They never would. Uh, and so they they uh, got an affidavit that in uh, in which she said, "I was never going to give up this baby," but of course that's not admissible in court. So that's one of the reasons I subpoenaed her, and I subpoenaed her not once but twice for trial testimony, and she did not show either time. And under Iowa law, the only way to enforce a subpoena is through the contempt of court process. And I happened to know that she had another baby at the time and I just couldn't bring myself to do it frankly right wow um well I I did want to go back to this issue of of your clients being a a lesbian couple and we discussed that quickly but what what particular challenges did that present to you and and it sounded like you did have a chance to talk to the jury afterwards I mean how did that play into it or did it play into it at all for them well, yes, it did. Um, we uh, let me explain how board deer works in Iowa. We usually talk to twice the number of people who are going to serve on the jury. So you usually talk to sixteen people to start with, and you can talk to all of them. You can ask them all. All of them. You can ask questions or can talk to them individually. You know, you have. There's a lot of of attorney. Uh, contact with potential jurors. And in Iowa, the judge generally does not ask any questions. It's entirely up to the, to the lawyers to uh, voir dire the, the uh, members of the panel. In this case, uh, because there had been so much publicity about it, because the judge was going to exclude the evidence of the baby's death, um, and, and because I have a certain amount of notoriety, <laughs> we, we, talked, we, we talked to about 40 people and uh, uh, emphasizing, of course, the, the first 16. And, uh, and I just flat out said to them, this is a case that involves adoption by a gay couple. And what does that bring up for you? For most, you know, uh, uh, gay marriage has been legal in Iowa since 2009. And all of us who supported that uh, believed that once uh, people came to know a gay couple, <laughs> that all the the horrors that they predicted would not occur and everything would be much better. And in fact, it is much better. It right. is um, it is much, much better in Iowa for for the LGBT community than it was nine years ago. Right. But still, there are those who have problems with that. On my panel, I had two such people. Um, one was uh, believed that being gay was an abomination and that, uh, that people who were gay were going to go to hell. And uh, yet she assured me she could be fair. 
And I pointed out to the judge, I thought that was not likely to occur. It's an abomination, but that can be fair. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was so strange to me. This is a very fine judge, in my opinion, a very fair judge. She worked very hard, but she would not excuse this woman. Um, and then there was a man who not only uh, thought that gay marriage was a horrifying thing, he also was an employee of UPS and the best friend of a man who sexually harassed a client of mine, and we brought a lawsuit on that uh, on that case. And uh, it it resulted in a verdict of eighty million dollars against UPS. Wow! And so he he thought he could be fair too, even though he was best friends with the guy who poked my client in the breast. So, um, I, and she would not excuse either of them because they said they could be fair, and that is the biggest fallacy in the law. The the person least likely to know whether he or she can be fair is the person who is being questioned, and. Right. Uh, it it just I've got a whole brief on this subject and it and it really riles me up because what happened in that case is I get four strikes, two of them I didn't really get because right. they, those two people should have been excused for cause and they were not and as a result of that um, I got two peremptory strikes and my opponents got four peremptory strikes and that is unconstitutional in my view. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such a, you know, in a, it, you know, for us down here, it varies, you know, in front of judge you go to. I mean, we make the same arguments and it varies from judge to judge. We really try to say that, you know, you can't, and there is law in Georgia, good law on it, um, that, uh, you know, you can't really rehabilitate a juror uh, after they've sort of committed themselves or say, said that for one reason or another, they can't be fair or, um, or are leaning towards one side or the other. Uh, but you know, it, again, it, it, it's really up to the judge's discretion. And, and, um, but we, we have a, a brief that we file with the court at the beginning and try to argue those points too, but it, it, it can always be a difficult uh, situation. Yeah. It, and it really, it really was difficult in this case because of the sensitivity of the issues. And I just I still can't believe that she would not excuse those two people. And, and, uh, and yet she didn't. And that, uh, the defendants have appealed and we have cross appealed on that issue on whether or not uh, you can rehabilitate a, a juror who has confessed bias and also on whether or not the judge should have permitted us to present evidence as to the death of the child. So this case as of now is sitting on appeal. Is it at the court of appeals level or Supreme court no. or? It's at the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court. Okay. Uh, it, um, well, good luck on that. Um, Thank you. The, the other issue I wanted to talk about, and, and only because it's, it, it looks like it differs uh, from how we, we practice down here, um, is that um, in a negligence case, and from what I can tell, this was, this was purely a negligence case, meaning you weren't claiming any type of intentional act. Uh, you were claiming that, you know, this was a mistake, uh, you know, and, and caused by this lawyer's inattentiveness. Uh, but in a negligence case in Georgia, normally you can't recover emotional distress damages unless you have a physical impact. Um, there is a, a, an exception to that in, down here where you um, call it the pecuniary loss rule. So if you can prove that you lost some sort of property value, 
then you can still make a claim for emotional distress based on the, that loss in property value. So I, I was just wondering in this case, what's the law in Iowa on that and how do you go about presenting the emotional distress damages? Well, uh, the law in Iowa is basically the same as the law in, uh, in Georgia. And in fact, the issue was never, never arose. And I think that it never arose because, you know, death is a physical impact. Right. And we have some law saying that, that uh, parents who lose their child in front of them or have something horrible happen to them, that they can recover emotional distress damages. But that issue was never raised by the lawyers on the other side. So I didn't wow. ever have to deal with it. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. So talk a little I bit. Know, and I was it was I was kind of surprised by that, but <laughs> right. nonetheless, <laughs> right? Exactly. I would be shocked by that. Um, yeah. so, so I've actually uh, I have actually had a case in my career that I tried purely on emotional distress damages. So I have some understanding of what it takes to um, to present that case. But can you talk about that? How you went about presenting a case where you're asking, you know, essentially for the emotional suffering that your clients are going through and how you present that to the jury in order to, you know, have them arrive at a $3.25 million award. These two women were spectacular witnesses. They are kind of salt of the earth, small town women. Uh, they adored this baby and every, everything they said everything they did showed how much they loved this child, how much they wanted this child. And so, you know, they were the principal witnesses to their own emotional distress. Heidi said uh, that, that once they learned that uh, Markeia wanted the baby back, there was about a, a week long period where they still had the baby, but she was going to take the baby back. And so they, they, cut a piece of his hair to keep uh, when when a door would slam in the neighborhood Heidi said they would think it was her I mean it was just an awful awful period of time that they went through uh, for that 10 day or so period when when they uh, knew that they were going to lose the baby but hadn't yet lost the baby right. and then they talked about losing a piece of their soul losing a piece of their heart we also had, I think, about 10 family and friends, uh, both, both grandmothers, um, the uh, people who knew them, co-workers. Uh, they had a number of physical symptoms. And I'm, I'm used to trying cases, Steve and Yvonne, that have emotional distress damages as one of the components of damages, or in some cases, the only component of damages. And you know, there were losses here, economic losses, you know, the $1,000 they paid, uh, the money that they put into caring for the child when they didn't have any right to care for the child. Um, but those were so inconsequential to these women that right. we didn't want to introduce a low anchor to the jury. Right. I never asked for a particular amount of money, never. I did not. Uh, I told them how to go about figuring it out but I never asked for any particular amount of money. Uh, and I often do, but I did not in this case because I knew my own emotions were so high that I, I didn't want to underreach and I didn't want to overreach. And so I just decided to let the jury have a complete free range to decide for themselves the, the worth of the relationship between these two women 
and their baby. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and that, that, I mean, I think, you know, obviously the way you presented it is, it was, is fantastic. And, and, and using family members to talk about it is just so powerful. And I, I try to always tell my, the younger lawyers that I work with that, you know, hearing a family member talk about how a client's been affected is so much more effective than having the client themselves talk about it. Um, because, you know, either they'll undersell it or oversell it, but again, it's never as, never as impactful. Um, yeah. Well, and, and I, I often give that direction as well, because one of the things that I've learned that, a lot, that juries really do not like are whiny people. But exactly. these women were not whiny. They were heartbroken. And yeah. it just came through in their testimony so clearly that I did not follow my own advice. <laughs> right. Had they ever, had they gotten any sort of therapy or counseling or did you have a psychologist or anybody testify no. on their behalf? I did not. Okay, so it was all done through friends and family and then them themselves. Exactly. <clears throat> well, and actually, all the expert witnesses, they had two experts. I had one expert. And I actually don't think I asked my own expert these questions. But, you know, they, these are all people who deal with adoptive parents. And one of the things I asked each of them was, isn't it true that all adoptive parents worry that they may lose their child. Isn't that one of the big worries that face every single adoptive parent? And they both agreed to that. And then I asked them, if, uh, have you had any adoptive parents, prospective adoptive parents who have, for, for whom the adoption has not gone through? And they said, yes. And then I said, and how did that affect them? And I think they both said they were devastated or words to that effect. I mean, that's not. That, that is so powerful. Obviously, they, they were not expert psychologists. They were lawyers who deal with adoptive parents, and one of their experts was an adoptive parent. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom, and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Wow. Yeah, I mean, and that's such a powerful way to, to cross-examine a defense expert um, because, uh, you know, and to essentially make them into, into your witness. Um, I, I did want to ask, you know, because I was thinking about how you would defend this case. I, I, I 
kind of was questioning in my mind why the defense would go get an expert or at least a, uh, you know, an adoption law expert. It seemed like any expert that the defense would have retained um, would have had to have agreed with your experts on the, on the adoption law. And, and so I was wondering why the defense would go get an expert. And I was just wondering if that was the experience in the case that they in, in, essentially had to admit your, your case. Yes, they did. Absolutely. That is exactly what they had to do. One of their experts was uh, uh, an adoption uh, law lawyer, and the other was a former juvenile justice judge, a retired judge who really did not have much experience with adoptions. But, you know, uh, uh, I called a judge on the stand. But she was um, not well versed in the case. She'd not done, she wasn't. She said she testified that Markea uh, told or thought that the McFarlands had lied to her about open adoption. And I said, where did you get that idea? And she said, from the text messages. So I handed her 40 pages of text messages and said, show me. And so we all sat there Mm -hmm. and watched her leave through the text messages at the end of which she looked up and said, it's not here. <laughs> you mean like wow. you had withheld it? Uh, no, or, or no. Just the, the yeah, text messages did right. not say what yeah, she right. said. They said right. the text messages did not say that the McFarlane's, that Marquea thought that the McFarlane's had lied to her. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I just couldn't understand from, a, from the defendant's standpoint, of, if I were defending this case, why you would put an expert up that's, that is basically going to agree with everything that the plaintiffs are saying. Uh, it just didn't seem to make sense. And then I also noticed that their expert uh, uh, said that your expert was the Yoda on adoption law, which I thought that I know was, that uh, was kind <laughs> of a surprise. Right. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I don't know how, how long or, you know, how great you have to be as something to be called the Yoda at it. I, I, that, oh, he's, he's really great. And he's a lovely human being. And, you know, this is what he does for a living is he, he, he considers himself a person who makes families. And that is just how he came across. Yeah, it, it, it's so much fun. I, I, I just one quick story. I had a medical malpractice case where my expert had been a professor in infectious disease and, and the defense had gotten an expert who had actually been trained by my expert. And so my, <laughs> whole, cross, my whole cross was, well, you know, when, so when, when Dr. Fry would, uh, would teach you how to do this, this is what he would teach you, right? And she said, yes, that's, that is exactly how he taught us. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, Roxanne, this has uh, been just a, uh, a fantastic case. I guess I'm wondering, was there any particular challenges? I mean, obviously, every trial is challenging, but was there anything that you, that you had difficulty overcoming or had to be creative in how you overcome it that we haven't already uh, discussed? Uh, well, we, yeah, we've already talked about the death of the baby, but an, uh, another thing that happened is when, uh, when, when, the lawyer learned that Marquet wanted the baby back. He had his secretary call the McFarlands and make an appointment for a week in advance. And they said, no, no, whatever's going on, we want to come in now. And uh, so they made, they arranged to see him at eight o'clock the next morning, but Rachel couldn't go. And so Rachel's sister, Tammy went and Heidi went 
and what Jason Reaper expressed concern about, believe it or not, was his malpractice insurance rates. Wow. And that was so stunning to these women that it stuck in their minds. His exact words stuck in their minds. I bet, you know, it's going to cause my malpractice insurance rates to go up is basically what he said. And yeah, I know it. I know. It's horrifying. I've called thousands of witnesses in the course of my career as an attorney, and I have never failed to tell the the witnesses, do not talk about insurance. Do not talk about insurance. I tell them probably three or four times when I'm preparing them, and right before they go on the stand, if I have the chance to do so, I say, remember, don't talk about insurance. In this case, both... Heidi and Tammy said, he said something about insurance rates going up. And of course, you know, more turmoil in the courtroom, more screaming by the defense lawyers, for which I, you know, I certainly understand. I mean, I know the rule and I told them the rule and they couldn't follow it. They, it it just came out of their mouths because it was such an outrageous thing for them to say. So, uh, you know, we had more motions and uh, things like that. So, so he's, that bringing was, up, he's bringing up his, his, his malpractice insurance rates in the same conversation that, he, that he's telling them that they're going to have to give the baby back if the mom shows up at their door? Yes. Oh, exactly. my God. I know that was kind of my reaction. Oh my God, how could he be so callous? How could he be so unfeeling? How could, how could he not understand that if he was dealing with distraught parents and he was resp- responsible for their distress? And yeah. he made it about him, somehow found it a way to make it about him. Well, well you know, we, we've been, yes, indeed. <laughs> and if I if I read the facts right, it, not only did he bring that up, but he also told them that if they wanted to try and fight this, then he would take another $15,000, but it wasn't going to do any good anyways. Yeah, basically so. But that was for not only his attorney's fees, but in the case of a private adoption, they have to pay the attorney's fees for the people who are fighting them. So, you know, that's, that is a, you know, that was probably a pretty good estimate of what it would have cost them to fight a losing battle, an inevitably losing battle. They were legal strangers to this child. Yeah, and, and this really could have just been solved by uh, following a, a couple of fairly uh, straightforward and simple steps right at the beginning. Right, exactly, exactly. That baby would have been theirs for all practical purposes uh, seven days after he was born. One of the things that I, I read in your, um, in your uh, notes on your closing, Roxanne, was um, that you said that there is nothing illegal, improper, or immoral to get a release of custody in 72 hours. And I was just wondering, was that one of the defense's arguments that somehow getting a release of custody that quickly was either illegal or immoral? Well, immoral. They, they tried to make Heidi and Rachel out to be lesbian baby stealers, basically. I mean, it was clearly not ever going to work because of who these women are. But that, you know, they, he said that he was concerned about contacting her because she was a minor. And I said to him, all you needed to do was get a GAL, then the GAL could contact her, right? And he said, yes. 
but that was a part of their their defense was that this uh, this young mother, uh, this innocent young mother, was being uh, railroaded into giving up her child. That is a part of their unsuccessful and offensive defense. Wow. So just, with, just when I think this case can't make me like matter and sadder. <laughs> it, was, it was, as I said, it was, I think among the, you know, I've been doing this now for 52 years and this was probably among the most difficult cases I have ever tried because of the emotional content. And I certainly have tried a number of wrongful death cases, including the death of children. But the fact that this baby was killed um, by his birth father, who he never should have been with right. in the first place and wouldn't have been with, but for the negligence of another lawyer, another member of our profession, another person who holds himself out to be an expert in exactly doing exactly what you need to do. He made this happen. Yeah. 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 Well, let, let me ask you about that, Roxanne, because, uh, um, you know, um, I, I've handled legal malpractice cases. I've handled them in the same town I'm in. And I'm, I'm just wondering, what, did you get any pushback about suing another member of the bar? Was there ever any concern about that? Did, you, you live in the same town. Is that right? Yes, I do. But I did not get any pushback. I got much encouragement and and I think um, uh, he, he is not a prominent member right. of the bar. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it can, it's definitely something that uh, is a courageous thing to do. And, and um, you know, I know that sometimes, uh, you know, people who don't understand what we do will, will accuse us of not wanting to sue, uh, you know, other lawyers. And, and, you know, and I always try and tell them, you know, that's just not true. It, you know, it, it's just like any other case. I mean, if there's, you know, negligence, if they did something to mess up, I mean, you know, we'll look at it. Right, exactly. That's what we do, too. We don't do very many legal malpractice right. cases. I tried one um, the summer before this one in which a uh, former county attorney uh, slept with a client and then beat the crap out of her. Oh, my God. And yeah. So, so uh, I have taken other such cases, but... Uh, generally speaking, I do uh, personal injury and employment discrimination cases. But this one, I was so glad. I have to tell you, I was so glad when these women called me and asked me to represent them because I'd read all about it in the newspapers and it was sickening and I wanted to be involved in seeking justice for them. Well, this is certainly tremendous work and, um, and really just pulls at your heartstrings. And um, so, again, <clears throat> congratulations on, uh, on a, a fantastic result and, uh, and good luck on, um, on going through the uh, appeals process. Thank you, Steve. I have a lot of faith in our Supreme Court. Yeah, maybe well, maybe we can do a, another uh, quick uh, bonus episode once once it's all wrapped up at the appellate level. Just to uh, okay, I want to know. Please keep us updated, Roxanne. Okay, we'll do. Well, Roxanne, this has been just a a, a great discussion and a, a, a tremendous result, a, um, a, a really fascinating case. And again, the case we've been talking about is called McFarland versus Reaper. It was tried in 2017 in the uh, in Polk County, uh, Iowa District Court. Um, and uh, we have been talking to Roxanne Barton Conlin. She is with uh, with Roxanne. 
Conlin and Associates in Des Moines, Iowa. And you can look up Roxanne at RoxanneConlinLaw.com. I keep doing that. Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Roxanne. This has been a, a, a really a great discussion and we really appreciate your time. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Yvonne. Thank you, Roxanne. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.